Hello, this is Brother Elliot. In this second part of our introduction to the Gospel of Matthew for preaching in year A, we recall that in the first segment of this podcast, we discussed the origin of the Matthean community with Jesus' major teaching on the kingdom and its main theme of righteousness. Now, here in part two of this introduction, we shall look at the structure and the content of the gospel as it lays out Jesus' various teachings. From a close reading of the whole text of Matthew, we can affirm that this final form of the gospel was produced for a largely Jewish but Greek-speaking community who knew the Jewish practice as well. There were some Gentile converts, however, and we can detect that their assimilation into this ethnic Jewish group of Christians was not completely smooth. New Testament scholar John Meyer, recently deceased, famously described the Matthean community as mostly moderate, but with a looming polarization of the community with fringe elements starting to form. I like to think of it as a description of church politics at almost any time in history. So in the Matthean community, with the passage of time, some Gentiles, probably on the charismatic side, began to question the relevance at all of the Jewish law for their newfound faith. Perhaps these overzealous converts were confused by a poor understanding of Pauline, more Gentile-oriented Christianity. Matthew saw the need to correct such a tendency while at the same time dealing with the reactionaries of the opposite extreme, who it would seem were too accommodating to the Pharisaic reform going on at Galilee at that time in the 80s. Those rabbis claimed that they alone would identify the Messiah, and that for, therefore categorically denying that Jesus was the Messiah. The gospel tries to remedy this situation by the teaching of Jesus that favors the Jewish traditional way of life, while strictly, even vehemently, rejecting the Pharisaical practice of Jewish law. This new Christian perspective on how to live as Jesus' followers includes maintaining Jewish traditions, but in a renewed manner, with a more perfect righteousness than the Pharisees. Jesus affirms, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you will not enter into the kingdom. That's in chapter 5. Christians are thus the new Israel, new because they follow God's true Messiah and Son, the perfect lawgiver and teacher of Israel's God. But they remain Israel, however, because they and they alone follow the will of God, the God of Israel, as disciples of his true Messiah. Our evangelist was a true genius who assimilated all this diverse teaching from Mark 
and from the Q document, as well as other Jesus traditions known to him, while closely keeping to the story outline provided by the Gospel of Mark, Matthew presents Jesus' teaching in five well-developed sermons or speeches of Jesus. So, after introducing Jesus with the very beautiful and dramatic stories of his conception and birth, he portrays him as formally presented to Israel by the last great prophet of the Old Testament, John the Baptist. He's then tempted by Satan in the desert. He commences his ministry by calling 12 special disciples in Galilee, and in Matthew's own words, quote, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and curing every disease and illness among the people. Chapter 4. We can see how many how, how we can see how many scholars like to outline the whole gospel following the five great speeches of Jesus in chapters 5 to 7, 10, 13, 18, and 24-25. But Matthew closes each one of them with the phrase, quote, and when Jesus finished these words, so it looks like Matthew's doing something very clear here. But this neglects other shorter speeches of Jesus. And so it's probably better to see the structure of Matthew as a long uh, narrative alternating between discourse and speech. Discourse and speech. That is, the story in words and deeds, which includes some pure speeches that run without interruption. This is not so complicated when we see it in the general outline as, for example, printed at the beginning of the New American Bible Revised Edition, uh, the, the text of Matthew. So here's what we want to do. We want to look at each part of the gospel in that outline. So first, the infancy narratives in chapters 1 and 2. We see they serve as an introduction to the identity of Jesus and to all the events of the gospel itself. This complex and gripping narrative is written like an Old Testament story and focused on a patriarchal presentation of the events leading up to the birth of Jesus. The angel comes only to Joseph, actually twice, to direct him to follow God's plan for the beginning of Jesus' life. Thus, Matthew's traditions of the birth of Jesus focus quite differently from those of the evangelist Luke, who alone tells Mary's part in Jesus' birth. Matthew starts with a genealogy of Jesus. This is an Old Testament device that shows who a person is by telling of the heroes in their lineage. The stories of the Magi and the flight to and from Egypt basically show how Jesus is like Moses, Israel's great lawgiver. They also introduce the openness of God's plan to the Gentiles, for the Magi were Gentiles. 
After this introduction, Matthew begins the ministry of Jesus with his proclamation of the kingdom in part one of the ministry, chapters three to seven. What exactly was it that Jesus was proclaiming? Well, Matthew provides for us Jesus' first address to the crowds, the Sermon on the Mount. Here, just like Moses, he ascends the mountain, he sits in rabbinic teaching mode and instructs his disciples, beginning with nine Beatitudes, a complex description of what it takes to be a true and righteous member of God's kingdom. We've spoken at length in the first podcast about righteousness. Further instructions on righteous living ensue in the rest of chapters 5 to 7, where it is affirmed that Jesus was teaching, quote, as one having authority. Now, in the second narrative section of the ministry, in the mission and ministry in Galilee, chapters 8, 9, and 10, Jesus begins his mission in Galilee in earnest with miracle after miracle. This confirms the presence of God with Jesus and gives credibility to his instruction of the crowds on the kingdom of heaven. Do you know that the kingdom of heaven is not only in heaven? No, it is clearly here on earth, even though Matthew, and only Matthew, calls it sometimes the kingdom of heaven instead of the kingdom of God, which is the usual way of saying it. Matthew's a very devout Jew, and he does not like to use God's name, so he often employs a euphemism, kingdom of heaven, to replace God's name in the phrase. For example, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But theirs is the kingdom of heaven now here on earth. It's God's kingdom. This section, part two of the gospel, ends with the sermon on the mission in chapter 10. Here, Jesus sends his new disciples out on mission to cure the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, and drive out the demons. This is clearly the task of Matthew's church as well. Jesus speaks here of the coming persecution and how to behave in it, pointing out that his coming would result not in peace, but in the sword, and that the reception of Jesus, however, is the reception of God, which brings a great reward. We move on to the third section of the gospel, chapters 11 to 13. Here, the relationship of Jesus to John the Baptist is clarified by Jesus' answers to the questions of John's disciples. John is the messenger of the Lord of the Covenant, as Jesus quotes the Old Testament prophet Malachi. John is the messenger. Jesus himself is the one who is to come, as announced by John. Jesus will save the poor by raising them to new life, as Jesus says, quoting the Isaiah poem in chapter 26 of Isaiah. How will this happen? Jesus himself will reveal the truth about God. 
This is the truth that when one follows Jesus, God's Messiah, the burdens of life are lifted up and made easy. The conclusion of all this is Jesus' third speech, the Sermon in Parables. Here Jesus reveals the receptivity needed to accept God's word and the selfless action that must follow. There is a reward for those who treasure God's word and judgment for those who don't. Now we come to the fourth section in chapters 14 to 18. Here, the plot thickens with the death of John the Baptist and Jesus' direct confrontation with the Pharisees, more miraculous events, and teaching about what's going on in Jesus' time and what will go on in the church. Here we have Peter's great affirmation that Jesus is the Messiah, and Jesus' response to him that he is the rock, the foundation of the church. Jesus predicts the passion here and tells how a true disciple will have to suffer as he does. This is then confirmed by Jesus' transfiguration only for the reader and three of Jesus' most intimate companions, but even they do not comprehend the meaning of it before his death and resurrection. Then Jesus teaches in his fourth great speech, the Sermon on the Church, that's chapter 18. Here he teaches about the future growth of the kingdom in the world as it forms a community within the world, among the evils of the world, but becomes a treasure to be obtained at any cost. In the Gospel's fifth section, chapters 19 to 25, Jesus begins his ministry in Judea with teachings on marriage, wealth, eternal, and the eternal reward, along with a caution against wrongful desire for earthly power and fame. In chapter 21, he shows us how to enact the truth by, when he enters Jer Jerusalem as the Davidic king, which he is, but humbly and riding upon a donkey in fulfillment of the prophet Zechariah. He en then enacts another prophetic act in the temple, condemning it as a house of thieves and curses the barren fig tree in symbolic allusion to the barrenness of the temple. Then follow three parables on the consequences of refusing God's invitation to holiness, after which he condemns the scribes and Pharisees for their hypocrisy. These actions, with these strong words, seal Jesus' fate. What is left for Jesus to say is his last formal sermon in Matthew, the eschatological sermon, 24 and 25, full of warning of judgment and the great reward for the righteous. Well, in keeping with our time limit of about 15 minutes, we must stop for now. We shall introduce the last part of Matthew, namely the Passion and Resurrection narratives, in a following broadcast 
in which we have planned to elucidate more fully the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most famous speech, and really the core of Matthew's teaching on salvation.